Amen. And amen. You may be seated. The gentlemen are going to come and serve you. And as they're serving you, we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to get started. I'm going to do a little introductory work here and um, we'll get started with our new sermon series. You may have noticed we're trying something new right down here. We run Facebook Live and uh, hopefully we've got some folks maybe watching on Facebook Live. It's a little bit different angle than we've had in times past. Uh, we're trying to make it nice and clear and the sound to be crisp, and so we're trying a few new things. So uh, if you're never able to be here and you want to be with us live, you could just go to our Facebook uh, page at Legacy, and you can tune in and get that. We also do a YouTube. We have YouTube subscribers, and uh, they catch us that way as well. And I'm amazed at how many people want to keep up with us. So uh, it's an honor to not only preach and minister to everyone that's in this room, uh, but to those that may catch us uh, through our technology and through live stream. All right, if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke's Gospel. I'm going to be reading a parable in just a moment out of Luke chapter 10, a familiar one. We're starting a new series that I entitled out of our I Love series that will be taking place all of 2017. I don't know how many messages will be in each series, but basically every month we're going to do a new I Love theme. And we've done a couple different I Love themes, the last one being I Love Revival. But we're starting a new one this month, and we've entitled it I Love My Neighbor. And really, it's really the repercussion of what happens when a church and a people enter into revival. Now, I want to just conclude some things from last week as we open up some new things this week. We'd been reviewing, I was sharing with you sort of a vision that I had with regards to the Anson Street Revival of 1857. If you didn't catch that, you can go to YouTube, look at last week's message. You only have to get into it about five minutes and you'll hear the vision. But I told you how God was merging Reformation and Revival together. Uh, God is downloading some things into my spirit with regards to a vision for Charleston, this city. He's unveiling to me the mystery, I believe, of numerous personal prophecies. I, I, I am a continuationist, which is the fancy word for saying, I believe the Holy Spirit is still alive and well and working in the earth today. How about you? Amen. I believe God's still speaking and talking. I don't believe he's adding to Scripture. Scripture is the rule, the measuring stick. It's the last say. It, it, is, it is God's codified, authoritative witness for us all everything is subject to god's written word but i believe that the holy spirit speaks things within the context of that word that can give us direction and insight and so i've received personal prophecies through the years and you always wonder how god's going to work this out and whenever you receive a personal prophecy i don't know about you but i always feel like god you're obligated to do this thing in the next week i mean that's just kind of how i treat them maybe you're different but, you know, uh, I figured that if God was speaking to the prophets about the Messiah three, four thousand years before the Messiah showed up, then maybe I ought to give him a little time on my prophecies. The day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. It could take a could take a few minutes for God to do this. So I always look at these prophecies and I want to be obedient to to the leading of the spirit. And, and so I've, I've read them through the years. It's not like I follow them like some sort of horoscope, but I do, I, I do take them seriously. And 
just these last few weeks as we've been praying about revival and, and God working revival, he's just been downloading some things with regards to vision again. And, you know, my heart has always been in revival. I know that may not make sense to you because I seem at times like pretty, I can be stiff and overly cerebral. And, you know, revival and, and you know, isn't it true though? Revival and sort of intellectualism don't really fit. And, and, I, and, and, and maybe we ought not have it totally fit, but it doesn't mean you check your brain out at the door just because you want to move of the Spirit. But my heart has always been for revival. I want to see God move. I was birthed in a revival. I mean, my ministry, I've told you these stories back when I was 19 years old and God opened doors to go preaching. Man, almost exclusively I'd be preaching on college campuses or youth revivals, we used to call them in those days. And almost exclusively I'd hold these you know, weekend meetings or week-long meetings. And, and that's what I was birthed in, I was born in. And, and, and God has just been speaking to me about how some of these wells that even are inside of me, you know, we've been digging wells out here in Charleston, the ancient wells of revival with the Anson Street 1857 revival. But, but there are wells inside of you. Some of you are older. You're in my age area. And, 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 and I know some of you aren't that old, but you're, you're in this thing long enough to where you've already kind of been through a couple different things. And I'm telling you, God's saying, we got to get back and, and undig or redig some wells. There's some things that God has done in you in years past, and they've just kind of been put on the shelf or they've, they've just been forgotten. And I'm telling you, by the Spirit of the Lord, He's wanting to dig some ancient wells out again and see some of that fresh water begin to pour forth. And I believe revival is coming. And the revival prayers that have ascended, I believe the Lord would say to us that He's heard these prayers, and He would say to us, be ready to get stretched. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be challenging. In fact, you're going to be challenged in a way that you never expected to be challenged. I'm just telling you, when you get bumped by revival, just say, I knew this was coming. He's going to push some of our buttons that we never thought were there. So I just want you to be forewarned that you can't pray without God answering and then looking at you and say, are you really serious? You're praying for revival. Are you really serious about this? God says, okay, here it comes. And, uh, and so I believe he's downloading some things that's helping to prepare me. And uh, hopefully you'll have ears to hear and you'll be prepared as well. But let's talk about our new series. I love my neighbor. I love my neighbor. You know, my growing up years were in the 1960s. And I remember, those of you that might be in my age era, you may remember this too. But our neighborhood in that era would get together and do stuff. I can remember clearly just being in elementary school that all the parents of the neighborhood would get together and they would have block parties or parties. I remember in particular one, it was a pig roast. And, and my parents and all the parents of the neighborhood chipped in and bought this whole pig. And when I'm saying whole pig, it, it looked like a pig. It was a pig. I think the only thing that had happened to it is it had been dressed. It had been gutted. And they had this thing where they heated up. It was super early in the morning, and they dug out a pit and, and lined it with bricks, and they heated it up with uh, a fire and coals, and then they dropped the pig in it and buried the pig, and that pig would cook underground all day long until you finally that night everybody would gather up. And, uh, I mean, you'd be eating bacon and ham. and I mean, it was, it was wonderful. I remember those days in the neighborhood. I remember days, Robert, in the neighborhood where every parent was allowed to spank you. I remember that. You remember that? 
Oh, it wasn't just my mom and dad that got to spank me. I mean, every parent just had a permission slip that was just understood. That you could spank any kid that was in your yard that needed a spanking. Can you imagine that happening today at any level? And I understand it probably doesn't need to happen. Back in those days, it probably didn't need to happen like it did. But, but I mean, it was just that those, you were just a neighbor's. I literally, I, in fact, I can almost go back and do this, but I can almost name every last name of every household on the block that I lived on when I grew up. Isn't that remarkable? You just knew your neighbors. You knew their names. I remember running next door or across the street for my mom to borrow sugar or milk. I can remember my dad walking a couple doors down to borrow a ladder or some tool from a neighbor that he didn't have. I think back to those days and your neighborhood was literally a small social structure that people watched out for each other. I mean, you'd ask your neighbors to pick up your mail. You'd ask your neighbors to get in your house and do certain things. And they would. They'd watch your house. They'd hold your mail. They'd water your lawn. They'd take care of your flowers. They'd organize baby showers. They'd babysit your kids. That's what a neighborhood looked like back when I was growing up. But those days now are long gone. In fact, it's absolutely possible that you don't know a single name of a single person on your street. When we were wanting to move into our old Charleston neighborhood years ago, it's interesting, Tracy, Tracy was praying. She really wanted one particular house in the neighborhood we eventually moved in. And the Holy Spirit, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit will work in my wife in some amazing ways. But Tracy felt a quickening to do a predator search, a sexual predator search on the internet. If you didn't know you could do that, you can literally do that and you can see because certain people convicted of, of these type crimes are forever uh, followed and, and you can literally find out where they live. And, uh, you know, especially if there was, you know, child sexual predator things that had gone on. So she decided she was going to look that up. And the house we were looking at was right next door to a guy who had been marked as one. And so since we had young children at the time, uh, we just took that sort of as a warning from the Lord. That that probably wasn't the house to go to. And again, he opened up other doors and and we ended up going another direction. But 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 neighborhoods have changed, haven't they? It underscores the challenge that to identify and engage with our neighbor isn't like it used to be. We're living together as neighbors, yet honestly, no one's very neighborly anymore. We're fearful. We're busy. Who are they? We isolate ourselves. We're disinterested. We've, we've really connected other venues to where we connect. Our neighborhoods aren't so much where we live. Our neighborhoods now are sort of where we go. Church, for example, has become some people's neighborhood. Other people choose bars. That's their neighborhood. Or workout gyms. That's their neighborhood. You remember the old... Uh, TV show Cheers, which was the bar, and remember the song? The song was a place you go where what? Everybody, everybody knows your name. I've even been to Hardee's and seen over in the corner a group of about 15 guys, usually senior guys, and they're all drinking their coffee, telling their stories. It's their neighborhood. 
My grandpa even, I remember he lived in a rural area, so there really wasn't a neighborhood. But every morning, my granddad would jump into his pickup truck. He would drive into town. It was a real small town, Washington, Kansas, population of about 500. He'd go to the coffee shop, and he'd spend his whole morning in there with retired farmers, and they'd, they'd gripe about the weather. I'll never forget, I used to visit in the summer times for two weeks, and I'd ride with them, and every, every day they'd gripe about the weather again. We have crowded streets. We have backed up interstates. But as a culture, we've never been more isolated, polarized, and disconnected. It's, it's so for us all. And yet the great commandment that Jesus left us with was what? That we were to love the Lord thy God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And the second is as the first, and you can repeat it after me, and it's what? To love as Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, I think somewhere this year we're going to preach a series on what it means to love yourself. But right now, we're just to love our neighbor. And that's what we're going to explore at least this month. Who is my neighbor? That's what we're talking about this morning. Who is my neighbor? Luke 10, 25. Can I read a familiar parable to you? Let's read it, shall we? And behold... Verse 25, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, meaning Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Keep that in mind because that's the context. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? In a question mark. What's your reading of it? And so he answered and said, now listen, he quotes the law. He's not quoting the New Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament, which reminds us that the Old Testament has New Testament precept in it. Don't you kick out your Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament when he says, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He just quoted the Old Testament. And Jesus said to him, you've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, meaning the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a parable. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he had arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. Now hear me, two denarii were at least two days' wages. What would you make in two days? Some of us, you know, we do okay. That, that'd be a pretty good sum of money. Two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, and isn't it interesting, he couldn't even say the name of the Samaritan. He simply said, The one who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Who is my neighbor? 
Now, before we jump into answering the question as to who our neighbor is, I want to say something just quickly about the nature of parables because people, people read parables and oftentimes some, you know, parables seem simple, but then sometimes they're hard to get our arms around. And many people try to interpret parables allegorically. What that means is, is that there are people that look at a parable and they, and they try to look at the story and they think that like each person or item in the parable is like a type of something. And because it's a type of something, it makes the parable maybe a little more spiritual. But I want to just share with you that in my opinion, that's probably not the best way to handle a parable. Because remember, when Jesus is teaching and he's giving a parable, the people that are listening to these stories aren't even thinking in the fullness of revelation that you and I have, having walked with the Lord now for probably some of us for years and having several thousands of years of revelation. They're just hearing a point for the first time and the story is just a story to illuminate the point. So for me, a parable is best grappled as seeing it as sort of a window by which Jesus uses in order to open it up and let some light in on a subject or on a point that he's trying to make. In other words, don't make it any more difficult than it could already be. Usually the most simple point is the point. And the parable that I read to you here, familiar as it is, really opens up the study as to who is our neighbor. Now let's talk about the context here. The context is Jesus is interacting with a lawyer. He's probably a lawyer from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the group that most of us know as the religious leaders. And uh, they had lawyers because they also had a civic purpose as well. And so here was a lawyer and he's interacting with Jesus. And as lawyers go, he was wanting to be thorough. He was wanting to be meticulous in some important points concerning his future. I told you what the context was. He says, I want to know how I have eternal life. The lawyer is asking, how do I get to heaven? It's important. That's the question that this is revolving around. He says, what's it going to take for me to know I can go to heaven? Now, it's interesting because those of us that have been around the block on these things for a while, Jesus is going to answer in a way that's going to sound somewhat strange to some of our ears. Because Jesus said, well, what do you think it takes? And so he quotes that Old Testament passage about loving God and, of course, loving your neighbor. But the lawyer, not wanting to just leave it in any ambiguous nature or state, he begins to say, well, then, then tell me who is my neighbor. Now, I don't know if he was trying to just justify himself, to be self-righteous, to be affirmed in what he'd already been doing. I don't know. But he decides to go the extra step with Jesus, and sometimes that's not the thing to do. Sometimes when Jesus is talking with you, you ought to just say, yes, sir, and obey it. If you want to go on, he might underscore some things you didn't want to hear. And so Jesus tells this familiar story. He begins to give this parable. Now let's unpack the parable. The phrase, the good Samaritan, is analogous with people who want to be helpful and compassionate. Isn't it true we'd call people a good Samaritan if they help somebody? Think about how often we use the term Good Samaritan, or even Samaritan. How many hospitals are named Samaritan? Or uh, how many uh, rescue missions are called the Good Samaritan, maybe rescue mission? I have a health, health plan where, where Christians share their medical expenses, and it's called Samaritan Ministries. So Samaritan is well known. But the familiarity of the story 
we don't want to hide these important points because according to the parable, here's a man who falls prey to robbers on the Jericho Road. Now, the Jericho Road was also known as the road or the way of blood. There was a reason for that. It was a dangerous road to travel on. It was not uncommon or unheard of for people to be robbed on the Jericho Road. And so as they hear this story and they hear about this man being robbed, everybody can say, yeah, that's not, he shouldn't have been walking down that road. That's not a good road to walk down. All of a sudden, two religious figures see him and pass him by, a priest and a Levite. Remember, these two were meticulous about the law. However, now a Samaritan man comes by after these two meticulous people of the law walk by him. The Samaritan man shows up. He sees this victim of a robbery and he begins to extend mercy and compassion upon him. Now, the irony of the story rests in the fact that two of God's chosen pass by the man. While a Samaritan who was considered unclean and untouchable by the Jews was the one who went out of his way to make a difference. And I honestly think Jesus uses the Samaritan in the context of the lawyer's question about eternal life to underscore the fact that heaven is still gained by grace, not by race. See, if I... I, I, I need an organ behind me on that one. You hear what I'm saying? A lot of people in those days thought the only way you got to heaven is if you were a Jew. Hey, listen, it has nothing to do with your race. It's all by grace now. That's why he used the Samaritan. He's going to take a person that Jews hated and use him in order to explain what the original question was, and that was about inheriting eternal life. He says, man... It's not your Jewishness that gets you in. That's what he's setting him up. But hear me when I also say that the parable is not teaching that just by doing good works, it automatically gets you into heaven. Jesus isn't necessarily saying that either. But what he is saying is this, is that your works demonstrate or they flow from whether or not you've truly connected to God. You see, you see it's, it's, not, it's not really this faith versus works. It's really faith and works. You see, there's some sort of demonstrable manifestation of your relationship with God that begins to flow out of you, that begins to demonstrate that this connection of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that if this one's good, then this one will be good. And the Samaritan reaching out to this man in this story, Jesus begins to define how relationship with God works between him and neighbor, and he begins to define more clearly who exactly is our neighbor. So let's answer the question, who's our neighbor? The simple answer is this. Your neighbor is the one you meet who has an immediate and legitimate need that only you can meet. I'm going to leave that up there. Your neighbor is the one you meet who has an immediate and legitimate need that only you can meet. Now, I just want to give you sort of a sad reality. People will take advantage of Christian people's good and benevolent nature. 
Yeah, they will. If you haven't found those that have taken advantage of your nature, just hang on. Somebody will eventually. I remember one, one this is some years ago. Some of you may remember this. I, I received a phone call. I, this is the craziest thing. I'd never had faced anything like this. But apparently I had this, this couple that had visited at the church uh, one Sunday, and they met a lot of people. And um, it was great to have them. We're always glad to have guests. And, you know, I've never had, I've been pastoring 34 years. Never has this ever happened to me. And, and, you know, you're glad and everything. And then two days later, I get a phone call. And this, this phone call, little did I know, was this orchestrated scenario that this, this couple supposedly had been traveling through West Virginia and they were unjustly detained in sort of this backwoods, redneck county. And they've been unrighteously pulled over and they were hassling them and they needed money wired to them. And if I could, I know as I'm telling the story, you would probably say to yourself, you got snagged by that. If you could have been on the phone, I'm not snagged easily. But man, they got me. The hook went right in. Man, they hooked me. I was into that. They needed $300 wired to them. And they went through this whole thing. And I'm just listening to this. And there's kids that are screaming in the background. And I'm listening to some guy who's supposedly the deputy sheriff on the other end. I mean, it was, it was a well-thought-out scam for 300 bucks. And I said, well, man, I'm going to help. And so I wired them these $300. And, and as soon as that took place and the wire took place and all of that, there's just something that began to eat at me. Like, I wonder if I just got conned. And so I called a couple pastor friends of mine here in the area, and all of a sudden we began to put it. They'd, they'd been calling a lot of different churches, and we put it all together, found out it was a scam. Anyway, long and the short of it was, I was so, I was so just, I'd been, I'd been used before, but it was like this time, it was like, oh, I can't believe I was used like this. And, there, and I was just, and so something just got in me. So I just called Western Union and I got the police on it and, and they were found and literally they were put in jail. And I eventually got a letter from the gentleman who apologized to me and said he was sorry and uh, just encouraged me not to allow his uh, his con and his shenanigans to keep me from being kind to other people because he, he knew what he had done. It's easy to become jaded. It's easy to become cynical. It's easy. It's easy to say to yourself, come on, I, you, you can find a job. You can go to work. I remember in Ohio, when I pastored in Ohio, the transients would literally mark the telephone pole so that the whole community of transients could see that this was a new pastor, he was an easy touch. And I remember I had an incredible amount of people come through and just the kindness, the benevolence that you want to do. But it's easy to be cynical. But we all know that there are times we wonder, am I really doing something that's, that's being helpful? I've been conned. I've been conned by drug abusers and alcohol abusers in the name of compassion. In fact, it, it reached the point where I learned ways of vetting needy people to make sure they just weren't scamming you. And, and, and I know for you, maybe you have felt like, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to be generous and I feel like I've been taken. And, and I just want to caution you. It happens and people will take advantage of you, but don't, don't let the world jade your faith. Don't let it 
Don't let it snuff out the Holy Spirit stirring that might say to you on occasion, you need to, to help this person. And Jesus said, and I'm reminded of this, he said, the poor you'll have with you always. He said, some people will be poor and they'll always be poor. They don't have any intention of being anything other than poor. But there will also be people who have problems that want help. And so the parable wasn't shared by Jesus because we're under obligation to help absolutely everyone in the world that has a need. Do you know that if we were demanded of to help everybody in the world that has a need, it wouldn't be long before we were needy. Paul even said, he said, if the man won't work, don't let him eat. So sometimes hungry people need to use the hunger as their impetus to go find work. Now, nobody wants anybody to be hungry, and I've fed thousands of people, and I'll continue to help feed people. But hear me when I say it. Well, how do you do this with your neighbor? Is everybody our neighbor? And I'm going to be teaching a lesson before we're done this month on the difference between helping a person, helping your neighbor, and enabling your neighbor. There's a difference. Not everybody is a victim who thinks they're a victim. But this robbery victim was here in this mess through no fault of his own. And our neighbor is the one we come in contact with that has such a need that at that moment, hear me, I'm the only recourse they really have. In other words, it's a legitimate need. It's an immediate need. And I'm the one that's on the scene. Now hear me, this is, this is, I'm preaching this as the parable comes to us. It wasn't a church program. Now nothing wrong with church program. There are church food closets and I have a pastor friend in Florida who has a great food closet in his church. You know, he has a couple hundred people at his church, but he has about 500 people lining up for the food closet all the time. Are you following what I'm saying? People want to eat. They just don't want to get right with God. So I understand programs have their place. Feeding people have their place. Not against the program. But the parable has to deal with you and me walking along doing life. You and I are just walking along doing life. It's not Pastor Baird. It's not Legacy Church. It's not even that you're a member of Legacy Church. It's just Tom, Dick, and Harry. It's just Joe, Samantha, and Patty. It's just we're walking along doing life. It isn't planned. It isn't discussed. You aren't organizing something around a committee. It's not an outreach moment. It's just providential when all of a sudden you're walking along a Jericho road and here's a legitimate need. It's an immediate need. It's presented to you. And all of a sudden you are challenged to intervene. It's a moment when you are called from the sidelines to jump onto the field and make a difference. Now, as we talk about this neighbor, let's talk about what the cost is, the cost of being a neighbor. See, what Jesus, I think, was saying here was this. He was saying that if your relationship with God is right, if, if you're loving him with everything you got and, 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 and you know that this relationship with my neighbors needs to be right as well, if this is what my faith sort of is looking like, I, I need to understand that in order to do this thing, there's going to be a cost involved to intervene in my neighbor's life. Because if your Christian faith doesn't cost you something, then you may want to reassess as to how your faith is being applied in a practical way. As I was doing this, and we were just preaching on revival, and I told you everything we're going to talk about is going to somehow swirl 
in the atmosphere of revival. I, I started to say to myself, you know, it's interesting how the cost of loving your neighbor lines up so closely to really the cost of wanting revival. Interesting. Let me give you just four quick things, and uh, we'll be through this today. Number one is this. What's it cost to love your neighbor? Number one is willing to cross a social barrier. You are willing to cross a social barrier. The Good Samaritan crossed a social barrier. He was a Samaritan. Now, we don't know exactly who the guy was that was robbed, but we know enough to know he was probably, he was probably a Jewish person. These are two groups that literally hated one another, and yet the need of one colliding with the faith of the other built a bridge. Here's a need. They're not like me. They don't look like me. They aren't in the same social gatherings as I am, but there's a legitimate, immediate need, and I'm here. I have to cross this social barrier. When I was going to college, I'll tell a quick little story here. It was a small college, and uh, it was growing rather rapidly, and so everything was being made into makeshift classrooms and other, other areas, and the cafeteria had sort of expanded, but they, but they hadn't broken this wall down that was in the middle of the cafeteria. So there was literally a, a wall with, with a fairly wide door, but there were two sides to the cafeteria. Everyone would go through, pick up your food, and then you'd sit on either side of this particular wall. And, and you know, it would hold about, I guess, half the students that may have been eating lunch at any particular moment. Well, it was interesting what began to happen because on one side of the wall, everybody that was uh, socially, I'd just say socially elite, would sit on one side of the wall. And then everyone who was kind of geeky or nerdy, whatever word we use nowadays, or they weren't in. See, this was the in people on this side, and these were the out people. And the outs would sit on the other side of the wall. And, and, and you know, it went on for a while, and then all of a sudden, it just we, we, were, we were recognizing it. You say, what side of the wall were you on, Pastor Baird? I was over here on the nerdy, geeky side. And it was interesting that there was one religion major who was in his homiletics class and, and homiletics means is basically you're, you're learning how to preach. And he got up in preaching class, and it was his time for his sermon, his, his student's sermon. And he got up in class, and he preached on tearing the wall down. And he literally meant that wall in the cafeteria. And, and that sermon got out around campus, and it caused such a stir. You would be amazed at people who were fighting to keep the wall up. And those that were saying, let's tear the wall down. You didn't realize that that wall was just a physical manifestation of what already was existing in the hearts of a student body. And that was there were some who were socially in, there were some who were socially out, and never the two shall meet. I'm here to tell you, sin alienates. If you want to know the nature of sin, it alienates when you're in sin, you're alienated from God. A holy God, that's why sin, you feel like, where's God at? Why, why isn't he talking to me? When there's sin in there, it, it alienates from God and sin alienates from our neighbor as well. And yet our neighbor are those who don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They don't dress like us. This is, this is challenging because all of us have perceptions as to what normal is. And sometimes God lets you 
come across someone that's not so normal so that you have to reach in and you become the arms of Jesus to them. To them. We still struggle in America, even with our national sin of slavery. It, it, still, it still challenges us to this day as blacks and whites try to find ways to somehow connect even as believers. It's challenging. But to love one's neighbor, to know who your neighbor is, sometimes it costs you stepping into and across a social barrier. Number two, what does it cost to love a neighbor? Is that you must be willing to take a risk. Now, it's interesting to me that the Good Samaritan didn't know if that was a trap or a snare. The Jericho Road was known for its crime. It might be easy to see that the religious crew, perhaps they walk by because because they were saying to themselves, well, I know it looks like a need, but it could be a trap. And so, you know, you could even make excuses as to why maybe they passed by because there was a history of this road. Its nickname was the way of blood. It didn't get that nickname for nothing. How many times are we reluctant to step into something because we are assessing the risk? But Christians assess risk differently than the world. Why is that? It's because my life is not my own. <laughs> you know what? My life is not my own. When I was born again, all of a sudden I've been crucified with Christ. So now that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, I'm already dead. You can't kill a dead man. That's why we do remarkable things as believers. Now, hear me. If you're a woman alone on a deserted road driving and you see a man next to a disabled car, I would say you need to assess that situation and make a call for him. Doesn't necessarily mean you stop by. I think, I think we, we access this thing wise. Being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. The, Jesus isn't calling you to do something foolish, but he is asking us to step into life. So hear me. I know people hear what I preach and they'll say to themselves, you know, they'll be out in the middle of somewhere that you know and it's just it's just a it is something that that you need to use some wisdom at you know tracy mentioned one time when she was babysitting she was on a farm one time and all of a sudden a guy knocked on a door she was there all alone and he wanted to come in and use the phone and her answer was i'll be glad to make a call for you but you ain't coming in this house all right so so you can still help you just are being smart and wise all right number three what does it mean to love my neighbor number three you got to be willing to be inconvenienced are you ever inconvenienced for your faith? Does everything we do with regards to our faith have to fit into our convenience and how it fits into our schedule? Has your relationship with Jesus ever caused you to say to the world and its screaming priorities, you guys wait for once. God's asking something of me and he needs to come first. The Good Samaritan took the time to make sure the need was met. Whatever his reasons for traveling the road that day, they were set aside to intervene in the life of this victim. There was something at that moment that said, he's a neighbor, and neighbor at this point is more important than whatever else I may have been traveling for. I know this is rocking, this would rock your world, really. And then finally, number four, cost of loving our neighbor is that you have to be willing to make a sacrifice. The Good Samaritan sacrificed his time, his money. In fact, his sacrifice, as you read in the parable, was actually an investment. 
Are you willing to make an investment in somebody? How about paying for the stranger's groceries at the grocery store who looks to be a single struggling mom and she's looking through and she's pulling out the pennies and the nickels and she can't find money. I mean, I'm not, I'm not venerating anything. I don't do this all the time, but there are moments you see somebody in line and, and you say to yourself, not just to get through the line quicker, but say to yourself, hey, listen, listen, let me just take care of it. I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. How about pay it forward at pickup windows? That's one of the most fun things to do is you drive up to a window and you look at him and say, what's the guy behind me owe? And they'll tell you and they just, and you say, pay for his too. And they'll look at you like, what in the world? And say, yeah. And uh, tell him, have a blessed day. That's all I want you to do. And just to drive off and drive off slow so you can watch him just go like. Have you ever made a sacrifice? It doesn't have to be programmed. What would you do to facilitate the possible salvation of your neighbor. I mean, what, what sacrifice might you make if it made an eternal difference in someone else's life? See, there's a cost. There's a cost to our faith in loving our neighbor when God leads our steps by someone who may need us to intervene. I'll end with this. There's a familiar scripture that has challenged me on more than one occasion out of Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus said these words. He said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever heard that one? That our righteousness was to exceed scribes and Pharisees. Now, for most of us, we've been taught that Jesus imputes Because of his sacrifice on the cross, he imputes his righteousness to us. Therefore, it's not us who is presenting our righteousness, but it's now his righteousness in us. And and, and so you read that verse and you say, okay, well, my righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees because it's not my righteousness anymore, but it's his righteousness in me. And, And I don't disagree with that. And it's true that it's not your righteousness. It's his righteousness that's now in you. That exceeds theirs. But hear me when I say this. Jesus also looked at his disciples and said to them these very words. That doing life with people at times means, remember, you not only go and walk with them the mile, but you go the extra mile. You you don't just let them hit the one cheek, but you turn the cheek. It's not just, you know, giving them your shirt, but it's giving them your coat also. And sometimes I think that's the exceeding righteousness. And that is we're not asked just to do the lowest possible minimums that we can get by on the skin of our teeth so that somehow or another we can remain in the good graces of the Almighty. But there's something in us that has so utterly abandoned ourselves to the knowledge that He's got me no matter what, that even if I'm asked to give it all away, He'll give it all back and more. It's not, it's not saying we need to develop the church program so we all can write a check and let someone else deal with the logistics of it. It's about you. It's about me. It's about being personal. It's about intervening in somebody's life that needs intervention. It's about hearing down the street that young couple just had a baby, they don't go to this church, but that doesn't keep you from making them a meal. 
Heck, it's hard enough to get each other to make meals for one another in the family of God, to even suggest we might make a meal for someone that isn't even in the church. That's almost like mind-boggling. Maybe you see that your neighbor, for whatever reason, can't afford to power wash their house, and it's just it needs power washed. And maybe you call someone up on the phone, and that's 100 bucks. And you just say, would you do it? Don't tell them. Just show up and say, hey, someone's paid to have this done. And just bless someone or mow someone's lawn or take someone's kids to school. I mean, I don't know. It could be a hundred different things. But to just stop for a moment and say, at what point does my faith become so tangible that it intervenes in a legitimate, immediate need that I walk upon? Your neighbor is the one that has the need that only you can meet. It's interesting, I read an article through my news feed on social media. Apparently, a guy, I think it was in Idaho, was shoveling his elderly neighbor's sidewalk, which he'd been doing for nine years, shoveling her sidewalks so she could get out and walk. But the uh, chief of police decided that shoveling sidewalks and for them putting snow out in the street might cause... Uh, problems they were citing people with fines for shoveling their neighbors driveways and sidewalks and the man received a two hundred and six dollar citation for disposing of material on a public right-of-way he decided he was going to fight it got an attorney who said he'd do it for free and they finally got the amount down to seventy five dollars But the city extorted $75 from a man who's just trying to be a neighbor. (laughs) Now you know why we're also doing reformation as well as revival. That is just stupid. But that's the world we live in. Hey, they killed Jesus, and all he did was heal people, feed 5,000, raise people from the dead. They loved him so much, they killed him. So know right now that as you intervene, you may not get a lot of accolades on this earth, but you may just get the accolade of the one that really only matters. Let's love our neighbor. Amen? Stand with me, will you please?